As Dave mentioned, we're so thankful for all who have made it here this morning. Even though we're small in number, we pray that we can worship God in spirit and in truth today. And I hope to bring um, our study in Galatians today to a close when we're studying in, in chapter 6. And uh, um, hopefully we can kind of bring it, bring it all together and, and understand the importance of the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. We're going to be in uh, chapter 6, but I actually want to pick up in verse 25 of the previous chapter. In chapter 5, verse 26, and we'll start reading there. And it says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourselves lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who, who, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will, also, will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are the household of faith. Those are the verses that we're going to be covering this morning, and we'll finish the, the second half of the chapter up this afternoon, as Dave mentioned. And from this text, I want us to understand that there's, we have this one truth of foundation. The greatest evidence of the Spirit-filled life is love for one another. It's not the only fruit of the Spirit, but it's the one that we can... We can rest our foundation, love for one another. And it's important because we can get so many misunderstandings and misconceptions of what the Holy Spirit does. But the Holy Spirit is producing this out of us. There are places in the scripture that talks about some of the things the Spirit does. But what we see here in Galatians 6 is that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And I think we need to be reminded of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 when he said, If I speak in tongues of men but have not love... Then I'm like a resounding gong. If I have prophecies that I speak but I have not love, he says, I am nothing. The greatest, the greatest evidence of the Spirit-filled life is love for one another. And this is where we need to realize that the evidence of the Spirit-filled life is not primarily about the emotional highs that we get. It's more about the practical acts of love that we show to one another. And that's what Paul, I think, is teaching. Some of what Paul is teaching here. He says, here are some concrete, sound ways that we can love one another. I want to show four enemies that us of the family of God have against us. Four enemies of the family of God. They're simple, but I think they can have huge effects if we're not careful. The first one, self-centeredness. All of these enemies of, of, of the family of God are going to kind of have this, 
uh, influence of pride about them. If we look at verse 26 of chapter 5, it says, right before we get into Galatians 6, it says, Let us not become conceited, having vain glory in ourselves, centered on ourselves. Because when, when we are centered on ourselves, two things happen that he shows us here. He says we, we provoke one another and we envy one another. We begin to provoke and we begin to envy one another. That word provoked, it's a verb uh, that is unique to the New Testament. It literally means to challenge somebody. Like you want to challenge somebody to a competition. You want to show your superiority over them. We provoke one another. We envy one another. And it really is coming down to that we're wanting to have a competition with one another in the church. It's a picture of the way the world approaches the relationships. Then he says uh, here, of course, in verse 26, uh, let us not become conceited, provoking, and injuring one another. Then we get to Galatians 6, chapter 4. I'm sorry, I skipped forward. Uh, uh, in chapter 5, verse 15, it says, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the competition that that members of the church can have between themselves if they're conceited and, and, and they're provoking and envying one another. And when we get to uh, verse 4 of Galatians 6, Paul says, But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in one another. Competition, unhealthy comparison to other people breeds conceit and it breeds self-centeredness. C.S. Lewis He's the one who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and other books. He talks about this in his book called Mere Christianity. He starts by saying, If you think you're not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. He talks about pride. He talks about humility, how it's the great unattainable. You try and you try and you try to be humble. And then when you reach humbleness, you can be proud about it. And then you've got to start all over again. We're conceited people, and if we think we're not conceited, then we prove the point right there. Then C.S. Lewis goes on to say, Pride itself is the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. And that's the picture that, that I want us to see here. In, in competition with one another. We think we're doing well if we're doing better than the next guy. We think we're doing better than, uh, you know, this guy's doing great, but we're not doing as good. We feel inferior to one another. We feel inferior to that other person. Oh, I'm doing better here, and that guy's not doing as good as me. That's, that's in competition with one another, and that's what Paul has mentioned here. I think of myself to be a pretty fairly competitive person, um, particularly with my children, with our children. You know, there's no way I'm going to let my kids beat me with anything. No way. No, you're not going to beat me at a game. No, you're not going to hit a ball farther. No way you're going to be faster than I am. No way you're going to beat me at this board game. No way, especially the kids that Lizzie and I have raised. 
The danger that we have there, though, is I think that that can creep into the church if we're not careful. It can creep into our spiritual lives. And that's not necessarily all a bad thing. Competition is not necessarily all bad, and that's not what I'm saying. But there's no room for competition in the church. Let us not become conceited, Paul says, provoking one another and envying one another. And that's what's going on in Galatians here. This is what we can do. We can think, you know, some of these, uh, the Judaizers were saying, you know, uh, you have to do these additional things you, to be more self-righteous. You know, and, and, and you know, it's, it's not bad in, in a sense that in everything in this world cannot be competition. There's a healthy way in which we can look to others. There's a healthy way in which we're supposed to be able to look to others and to see Christ in each other and to be encouraged toward Christ through each other. So that's a good thing. But whenever we begin to look at a man or a woman in the family of God, in the Christian family, and we begin to think in our hearts and our thoughts, we begin to assert superiority over them or to think I'm doing better than that guy, I'm doing better than them, or they're doing better than me. We have that, that underlying foundation of pride and competition that, that we do not want. We're missing the point. We're not in a rat race in the church. We're not jockeying for position to be better than our brother or sister. And I think this can clearly, uh, if we're not careful, this can expose itself clearest with gossip in the church. In Galatians 5.15, it says you keep on biting and devouring each other. And the reality is, is any time that I speak about somebody that is not building them up, if you're not saying anything or speaking to anybody about me that's not building me up, that is opening a door to competition and to gossip that is not authorized in the scriptures at all. It's exposing ourselves to self-centeredness that is at the core of our sin sinful nature. And we can see this too even in the world that we live in. There's, there's Christian magazines, there's Christian publications that say, here's the fastest growing church in the nation. Here's the, the one with the most members. These Christian publications are, are competing with one another and that's what we don't want to see. What's the purpose? Okay, what's the purpose of those, those people doing that? What's the purpose? Who is that glorifying? Is that glorifying themselves or is it glorifying God? Who's getting the glory? Next, self-righteousness is another enemy. That was an underlying issue with the Galatians because of the Judaizers pushing some of the old law uh, into into the uh, Christianity after Jesus uh, established a church. They were asserting their righteousness because of what they did. They said, you need to do these things in order to be righteous. And, and it's also what Jesus uh, sternly rebukes to the Pharisees for doing in Matthew 23 and verse 4. He says, for they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay on them men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move with them with one of their fingers. They were trying to please God, and they were always trying to tell others about what they had to do in order to please God. Do these things. Additionally, uh, we see self-sufficiency as an enemy of the family of God. We're going to get to verse 2 in, in chapter 6 about carrying each other's burdens. Um, but but Paul, Paul right here is implying that we have burdens that we are to carry. Every single one of us has burdens in this room. We have burdens to carry and and. It is not intended for us to carry those burdens alone. However, pride 
in all of its glory that it comes in and says, okay, Sunday, with all these problems I've been dealing with all week, Sunday I'm going to come in, I'm going to put on a, I'm going to put on a face. I'm going to, I'm going to not pretend that I have these problems going on in my life. I'm going to be the best I can be so everybody can think that, that everything's good with me. That is not what is intended to happen. It's not what the picture, it's, it's pride taking over ourselves, thinking that we are self-sufficient. We do need each other. We are weak. We are weak without each other, and that's the picture. The myth, the myth of self-sufficiency that dominates our culture today, we have to be careful to protect against that in the church. The fourth enemy, and, and this is really a dangerous one, self-esteem. Self-esteem can be an enemy to the family of God. Galatians 6 uh, verse 3 says, If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, deceives himself. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, deceives himself. We live in a world that says, if we want our relationship with others to be good, then we need to think highly of ourselves. Isn't that what the culture told, tells us? You've got to think good of yourself before you can help somebody else. It's important to have, the doctrine of, of high self-esteem says it's important to have high self-esteem. It's all over the place. It's in other world religions. The founder of Buddhism said, you yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserves your love and affection. Then you've got experts uh, on relationship and researchers on personal growth who say, if you aren't good, and this is an exact quote, if you aren't good at loving yourself, you will have a difficult, difficult time loving anyone else since you'll resent the time and energy you give another person that you aren't giving to yourself. Amen. That'll, that'll put you into, into counseling on its own, just thinking about that. It's all, they want you to think it's all about you. If you can't do it by yourself, then you have no business talking to anybody else because you're going to get angry about that when you do that. Self-esteem, high self-esteem. Another one said, there is overwhelming evidence that the higher the level of self-esteem, the more likely one will be to treat others with respect, kindness, and generosity. So they link... They link uh, High self-esteem with respect, with kindness and generosity towards others. If you want to be kind and respectful and generous toward others, then you have to have a high self-esteem. Focus on yourself. Focus on esteeming yourself. Think highly of yourselves. It'll make your relationships better. That's what the world teaches. Romans 7, 18 says, There is nothing good in me. That's what Paul says. John 15, 5. This is Jesus speaking. Apart from me, you can do nothing. How is that for positive thinking about yourself? There are many things that we can embrace. And I in no way want to be critical of the entire uh, psychology as a whole. There are benefits to psych psychology that we can understand. And we know that help. This is my opinion. What if 
What if the way that we love others is not thinking about and esteeming and revolving our thoughts around ourselves? But what if love for others is about realizing that there's nothing good in us apart from Christ? Therefore, you need Christ for every good thing in you. And the key to relationships with other people is not a high self-esteem, but a high Christ esteem. What if the value in Christ and esteem in Christ and joining Christ and surrendering everything in us to Christ is the key to loving others? This is the whole picture of Galatians 2.20 that, that he says, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's the beauty of what Christ does. The Spirit, His Spirit lives in us and it produces the fruit. The fruit of love. The family of God is marked by Christ esteeming in our hearts and in our minds. And as a result, Christ is producing love for each other. So, don't focus on ourselves. Focus on Christ, what Christ has done, and what he does in us. Fixing our eyes and our thoughts and our hearts and our affections on Christ. In the process, we'll begin to discover what it means to love one another with a spirit-filled love. One essential to the family of God to combat these is self-examination. This is how we combat these. In verse 4 and 5 of Galatians, uh, I have Galatians 3 here, but it's actually Galatians 6. I have that wrong. It says, but let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone. We'll talk about it a little bit later. And not in one another, for each one shall bear his own load. What Paul is saying, he's saying instead of looking at your thoughts and your actions and your attitudes in view of how you're doing in comparison to one another and people around you, put your thoughts and your attitudes and your actions before the lens of the holiness of God. He said, don't compare your, what you're doing to somebody with somebody else. Compare that with God. What does God expect of you? What does God want from us? It's easy to compare ourselves to others, but to put our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions before the holiness of God and to have any other, have any and every facet of them that is not God honoring and Christ exalting exposes ourselves that we are very, very needy people. We are in need. We find ourselves in need of grace and mercy before a holy God, and in the process, we discover that there's a reservoir of uh, grace and mercy that we can then show to all those other around, that are around us. When we see ourselves rightly before God, then we're free to begin to see others rightly before God. And we're not interested in provoking our brothers and sisters. We're not interested in envying each other. And instead, we're, we're, we're looking to love them just as Christ loved us. So five, five commands of the family of God. When we get to Galatians 6, uh, Paul is telling us how to love one another, but the majority of the first five verses of Galatians 6 are telling us how to guard ourselves and then support. And, and there's an importance that uh, we, if we, if we don't guard ourselves in our purity and our holiness, then we will not know how to love each other. And what I want to show is, based on the, the scriptures that we're studying today, there are five commands of the Christian family of God. And I want to split these up into two sections. Uh, the, first, 
the first two verses, 1 through 5, and then the last three verses, verses 6 through 10. And when we see the command that says love one another, it's not a work of the flesh. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Number one. So with that background, the first command that he gives us is to confront one another in your sin. He gives that to us in the first verse of chapter 6. He says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That is not an option. It is not an option for those of us who, who are Christians who have a spirit-filled life to look at another brother or sister that's living in sin and say, that's, that's their problem. I'm not getting get involved with that. When we know that a sin is happening with another brother or sister, it is our obligation, it is our duty, and it is telling us right here in verse 1 that we need to confront that sin. It's not an option. There's, of course, uh, and we're doing it for the reason of restoration. We go to that brother or sister in love, in gentleness, as it says here. There's a way to do that. Understanding the mercy and the grace of Christ and our relationships with others, we, we've got to figure out how to go to that brother or sister and, and try to restore them because of the sin that they have in their life. It's a biblical command for us to confront one another in their sin. The second command is to comfort one another in your struggles. Verse 2 of, of Galatians 6 says, Bear one another burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Kind of the same thing he's saying in verse 1, but just in a more general fashion. Because in a sense, if a brother or sister is caught in sin, I can almost guarantee you that, that there's a weight of that sin in their life. That sin causes uh, anxiety and heartache when they understand the weight of that sin in their life. He's burdened by it. He's carrying that weight. And that's how we help him, by restoring him or loving him. Helping him climb out of that by the grace and the mercy of Christ. The spirit of Christ in his life. So there's a, there's a sense in which that he's referring to helping one another in sin. But also there's a, broader, there's a broader meaning to this too. Carrying each other's burdens. We all have burdens as I mentioned earlier. Maybe it's sin or temptations that we're struggling with. Maybe it's self-examination that there are some sins in our life. Some things that we just can't seem to get out from under. We keep going back to the same sin over and over and over and over again. That same sin we just can't seem to get out from under. We're not intended to fight those battles alone. At all. It could be a physical struggle. It could be illness. It could be emotional struggle. It could be uh, struggles with uh, depression or worry or doubt, anxiety, confusion that you're wrestling with a decision about that you have in front of you. Maybe it's a family struggle, a struggle with your kids, a struggle with your parents, a struggle with your spouse, maybe struggles at work, unemployment, financial struggles. It's all kinds of different struggles and burdens that it could be. Maybe grief or pain, loss, desertion or loneliness. All the burdens that we bear are most likely represented all across this room. Every one of us, the person sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you, is bearing some sort of burden. And what we are taught here 
is we are not taught that we have to deal with that burden on our own. That's not what the family of God is. That's not, that's not the intention. It's a command. It's not an option in the church. It's an obligation to, for us to carry each other's burdens. This kind of burden carrying that uh, in, in here in uh, verse 2, I don't think that burden that we're, we're carrying can necessarily be accomplished by just being together once or twice a week, one day a week. I don't think that's... I don't think that is reasonable to think that we can carry each other's burdens just for the little amount of time that we are together on a Sunday. We can't bear somebody else's burdens that way and they can't bear our burdens that other way. We, there's a sense in which we are commanded to be in situations and relationships where we can do that. <coughs> in 2 Corinthians 7, yeah, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5 through 7, listen to what Paul says. This is the same man, Paul. He wrote 2 Corinthians. He's, he also wrote Galatians that we're studying too. He says there in, uh, uh, starting in verse 5 of chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, he says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every, other, on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Paul's saying, I've got these burdens. We had these burdens when we were traveling, when we came to Macedonia. He goes on to say, Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. I hope we see the connection there. Paul realized that, that God was the God of all comfort when he received comfort from Titus. And then also when he received comfort from the church, from the church members. So we pray for one another. We surround each other and say, yeah, we're going to carry these burdens for each other in this way. And guess who the glory goes to? The glory goes to God because God is the one who comforts. He comforts us through his family, the family of God, the Christian family, through each other. This is why, you know, Christianity, when we become a Christian, I don't see how a Christian can, be, can live in isolation. That doesn't work with what we're studying this morning. It doesn't make sense to anonymously attend a church or a congregation. It makes no sense. We're a family where we, uh, we will miss God and his comfort and his greatness if we neglect commands like Galatians 6, verse 2. Bearing one another's burdens. So we want to praise God for his comfort and for showing that he comforts us through one another. That's how God comforts us as well. Uh, three more commands, verses 6 through 10, I want to show you. Uh, some of the... Uh, when we come to this last part, there's actually a lot of debate and discussion between uh, scholars and commentators um, who I was looking at uh, that have a lot more biblical knowledge than I do. What, Paul's, what Paul is actually addressing here, what's going on in Galatians' context, what he's addressing. Because when we get to verse 6, most of the scholars think that Paul is talking about when he says, uh, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. 
Most scholars believe that, that this is in reference to who's teaching, the one who's teaching the word of, uh, uh, to the congregation, make sure that he's financially provided for. Many people think that verses 6 through 10 are all about how, how we use all of our finances. Um, and then when we get to verse 7 and 8, he's talking about how, uh, sowing and reaping, and it's the same picture and imagery that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 9, talking about giving material possessions and giving uh, material resources. And then we get down to verse 10 of chapter 6, and it says, As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And that actual phrase is actually uh, used there in the New Testament was a euphemism um, in the first century for giving alms to the poor. There's a lot of people who believe this is all about how we use our finances, and, and I believe that's part of it, but I also believe it's about using the rest of our resources as well. Not just our finances, but what can, what can we do? How can we use our resources? What talents do we have that we can help somebody else with? What resources can we give to somebody who needs, uh, who's in need? Uh, our gifts, our words, our actions. How do we use that to help our brothers and sisters? Next, share your resources gener generously. Verse 6 says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Paul is using a word here, uh, koinonia from the Greek. For fellowship in the New Testament to talk about the relationship between those who teach in the church and the ones who are taught in the church. There's a sharing. There's a relationship. And what Paul's doing here is he's reminding the church of how important it is that the word is taught. And how important it is um, the one who is the primary teacher and, and, and studies has the time to study and teach that he's financially provided for. That's why we support Frank. He does so much work behind the scenes that a lot of us don't see. But we, we support him. That way he can have more depth, more knowledge in what he teaches than the other teachers here. I don't get paid. You guys are getting what you paid for this morning. <laughs> I, so that's why he's provided for. So he can focus more on delivering us the word of God. Fourth command. Sow your resources eternally. Verses 7 and 8 say, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. You plant corn, you sow corn, you don't get strawberries. You plant pistachios, you don't get cotton. What you're doing, what you're planting, that's what you're going to sow. We will reap eternally what we sow here. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 15 when we, uh, we don't have to go, time to go there this morning, but you go there, we, we see Paul talking about sowing our fin financial resources, not to the flesh, but to the spirit. And when we come, you know, personally, we have a choice. We have a choice. We can invest in that which pleases the flesh and bears earthly fruit, or we can sow that which pleases the spirit and bears eternal fruit. The final command that we have is spend your resources selflessly. Spend your resources selflessly. It says, And let, not, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Don't give up. Give everything if you can, what you can, to those around you who need, who need it more than we do. Use your talents. 
Use your resources. Use your gifts. Whatever may be in your realm of what you have control under, give to those who are in need around you. I want to encourage us all. We live a, spirit, we live a spiritful life. It will not be easy, of course. We will not want, you know, we won't always see the immediate fruit from what we do here, but we're planning for eternity. We're, we're working for eternity. We're, we're sowing here what's going to be reaped eternally. That covers the first 10 verses of chapter 6 that I have. Of course, we won't want to close the, the service out with any type of, any type of uh, invitation. We want to invite those who may be under the gospel call in any way. If you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins, we ask we offer that opportunity now. Hear the word. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We confess his name, that he is the Son of God, and we're baptized for the remission of our sins. We change the way that we're living. We're not living for the worldly things anymore. We're living for Christ because what he has done for us, and that changes who we are. It's not us trying harder to change. I'm going to work harder to make a little difference here, make a little difference there. No, it's a new life completely. Your old life is gone. The old man is gone. The new man now lives for Christ. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.